In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Paul is engaged in a parallelism in the section of his letter to the Hebrews that we have presented for us on this Passion Sunday. He is taking the promises of the Old Testament and showing how they are fulfilled in Christ and referring actually to other things in the New Testament as well. And I thought it would behoove us to go through some of these parallelisms for the church presents it to us on this, the kind of day of heightening of the central acts of our redemption. Right, We're kind of coming into the home stretch of Lent, this passion tide. We've covered the statues, as it were, hiding the glory of God, uh, fasting, abstaining, uh, even more from our senses near at the, the heightened time of Lent. And we, we get this... This tradition from the last words, of course, from the Gospel, where our Lord hid Himself. So we have, He has hidden Himself from our eyes. Christ did appear, though. So before He was hidden, as it were, He appeared. He appeared on the scene. St. Matthew refers to an earthly presence of Christ appearing on the scene. The Savior is come. He's among us. But what St. Paul is making a parallel to is not an earthly presence, but because he is writing after the ascension, the presence of Christ before the Heavenly Father. This is his appearance on the scene in the Holy of Holies of Heaven. And so this is the greater tabernacle. First we can understand it as the church triumphant. Just as in the temple of our Lord's time, there were different courts. So you go from the profane world, and you have the court of the Gentiles, the court of men, and the court of women, and you have the court of the priests, where certain sacrifices were offered, and of course then you have the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest himself alone could go once a year on the Day of Atonement to ask God for the forgiveness of the people. So too we've actually structured architecturally our churches, at least the ones which are built in a traditional manner. We have profane world outside. We have the doors in our procession towards the east in our coming and are waiting for the Lord. And we slowly get closer and closer to the Holy of Holies where the, the outside world is. You enter in to shun that, to enter into a sacred space. You have where the faithful are, where the priests are, and ultimately the tabernacle where our Lord is on the great altar. But so too in heaven. There is a similar structure of the new Jerusalem in heaven, of going up through ranks and ranks of saints. And this is what we can understand St. Paul to be talking about, that Christ passed through the heaven of the saints, the ranks of the angels, the ranks of confessors, virgins, martyrs, apostles, to that rarefied atmosphere in which Our Lady dwells, the Mother of God, until you get into the Holy of Holies, that holiest place where God Himself dwells. God the Father, with His Son at His right hand, in the power of the Holy Ghost, that triune but one God. In a very similar way, Christ rises up into this Holy of Holies in the real sense of which the 
the Old Testament ceremony was but a figure. When the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies, it was prefiguring this reality that Paul is pointing to. This is what Christ has done. This is what it was pointing to. And so we, through St. Paul, connect with our Lord, His promise to build a new temple. Remember when our Lord was in the temple precinct, and He was asked to, be, to, to give them a sign. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again. I will rebuild the temple in three days. And they scoffed and mocked him. It took over 60 years to build it. You're going to build it in three days? It would probably take longer than three days to knock it down. Unless it's by the power of God or a Roman legion, which happened. But this is, of course, what John reminds us parenthetically when he re reports this incident, is that he's speaking of the temple of his body. The temple not made with hands. Our Lord's body was not made with hands. Not by the will of men. Not really even by the flesh of men. But by the power of the Holy Ghost. In the immaculate womb of the Blessed Virgin. This temple not made with human hands. This, the perfect tabernacle. Our Lord's human nature. In which His divine person is united. The perfect tabernacle is the means used by our Lord to bring us all blessings. All good things come from God through the means of the sacred humanity of Christ. He is the Savior of the world. There is no other by which anyone is saved except by Jesus Christ. He is that new and perfect tabernacle. And the blessings which He gives... The fullness of them, the reality of them, are still as yet future to you and me. We have not realized yet the fullness of the blessings that God wishes to give us. And in this rarefied atmosphere, this new and true high priest offers, once and for all, the sacrifice of true atonement. Not ritual or ceremonial, but true cleansing of consciences purifying of hearts, saving of souls. And this sacrifice is none but Himself. In the Old Testament we had a separation between the priest and the victim. The priest was a member of the tribe of Levi, who would offer turtle doves, pigeons, lambs, goats, heifers, to make one ritually pure. It did nothing to the inside. Nothing. It only enabled one to participate in the external rites of the ceremony. For the sprinkling with ashes of a heifer, which Paul refers to, is the ceremonial purification for a man who had been in contact with a dead body. And he makes specific reference to this type of purification. Because he's saying that so much more with the blood of Christ, not merely the the ashes of a dead cow. There is real, meritorious causality going on. For the blood of Christ purges our consciences from dead works. Works are as dead as the corpse of this old ceremonial law. What are these dead works? There's a parallel here with St. James. Remember St. James says that faith without works is a dead faith. 
St. Paul is saying the complementary of that. Works without faith are dead. It is faith that enlivens all of our works. Our faith, our hope, our charity. Doing things in this state of grace is meritorious. From whence does grace come? This great means of the perfect tabernacle of Christ, whose blood has saved us. All the efforts to secure our justification by observance of law alone are no better than being tied to a corpse. We are not Pelagians. It is not our effort alone that saves us. We are in dire need of a Savior. And we have faith in Him. And it is from this faith that works flow and give life and justify. So it is from this legislative entanglement that our Lord's atonement sets us free. For Christ offers through the Holy Ghost, that is, through His divinity, that we are now under a new law, a law of grace, not mere ceremony. For ceremony is still important. Don't get me wrong. The ceremony is very important because of our nature. It is given to us because we are body and soul. And we need to see, we need to hear, we need to smell and touch to make that invisible God a bit more real and palpable to us so that our faith may be increased and our love may be burning more zealously. So we are under this new law. And this new law has a divine divine victim. For the divine dignity of this victim is what freedom from disfigurement of the Old Testament sacrificial lamb was. In the Old Testament, it was forbidden to offer anything unworthy of God, no matter what the sacrifice was. You don't offer a blind pigeon to God, a lame lamb. It must be the best. It must be the most perfect. What more perfect lamb could we offer than Christ? Christ Himself offers us, offers His Father on our behalf, the most perfect sacrifice of Himself. This is the unspotted Lamb. Even more so, Christ is a representative of His people, the people that He has won for Himself by His passion and His death, just as Moses was of the people so long ago. Moses treated with God and ratified that covenant with a sacrifice. How much more so is this figure, this shadow, fulfilled in Christ? Not a, just a representative of a race, but He has taken our nature unto Himself. He treats with God as an intimate because He is God. He ratifies a covenant not with the blood of an animal, with his own. Remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai to ratify the Ten Commandments. He offered sacrifice and had everyone partake in it. And thus, our covenant with God is ratified at Mass. For we are at that same sacrifice at Mass. It's the same 
only in an unbloody manner. This is why Mass is so important. This is why it is the object of those who would destroy the church and the priesthood and our faith. This is why the Mass is under attack, because of its power. And this is why we should love the Mass and attend the Mass and have the Mass bear fruit in our life. The covenant is, con is also understood as a last will and testament. It's the ratification of the covenant. Now a testament such as this, as the last will of someone, is not in force until the testator has died. Right? Your grandfather can change his will and write you out of it until he's dead. After he's dead, it's not, a, not an issue. So, a new testament was given to us at the Last Supper, but it was not operative until the next day when Christ underwent His death. This is the New Testament in His blood. These words are said at every consecration of the Mass. This is the New Covenant in My blood. An everlasting covenant. One that is real. There is no more figure. There is a real meritorious causality which is renewed every Mass, every sacrifice of the altar. This, as it were, holy of holy atonement is renewed. The fruits of which are spread out to all those who would partake of it. The fruits of this tremendous redemption and atonement are ours for the taking. And the first way we celebrate, the first way we partake of the fruits is through our baptism, which is a death in union with Christ. Never forget that. By our baptisms, we're already dead. We do not live for this world. We live in union with Christ. For baptism abolishes the guilt of sin. On this principle, death cancels all claims. But it is not our death. It is being engrafted and buried with Christ in His death. That is the salvific death, the death of the Son of God. And through baptism, and only through baptism, we are in a position to inherit. We are no longer in the debt of sin and punishment. Now we are in a position to inherit. And what do we inherit? Once again, a parallelism. The land of promise. We do not inherit the Jordan Valley. Our inheritance is the promise that was made to Abraham so, so long ago of being heirs to the kingdom of heaven, of being heirs to the kingdom of Christ. This is a much better land and a promise which is fulfilled in reality through Christ and the acts of redemption which we will celebrate in most solemn manner in the next two weeks. So the sacrifice we commemorate on this Passion Sunday is our deliverance from the bondage not only of the old law and the exact fulfillment of all of those types in the Old Testament come to fruition in reality through the person of our Savior Jesus Christ. 
But we celebrate and commemorate our redemption and the possibility of never-ending glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.